0: Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and we are so grateful. Thank you so much.
1: There are a lot of
2: problems with the way in which green consumerism has come to be operationalized, especially in the United States, as a, as an overly individualized approach. So there's a tendency for us to retreat from the from the politics of consumption and to think that if we eat a little bit differently, drive our cars a little bit less, maybe maybe acquire an a, an electric vehicle that through our individual behavior changes, that that will all roll up together into a process of meaningful change. Um, I think the evidence suggests that that's not likely to, to lead to the kinds of outcomes that we anticipate
0: Today, we have with us Mari Cohen, who is a professor of sustainability studies at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. He's also the editor of the journal Sustainability, Science, Practice and Policy, and co-founder of the Future Earth Knowledge Action Network on Systems of Sustainable Consumption and Production. In this conversation, we're going to explore a wide range of themes discussed in his latest book titled The Future of Consumer Society, some of which might challenge our preconceptions such as seeing conscious consumerism not through an individualistic lens, but more so a collective one, the limitations and cautions against seeing localization as our path forward to sustainability, and more... If you follow my work elsewhere, you'll know that I have been an advocate of localization as have a variety of our past guests. But I think it's always enriching and expansive for us to learn from a diversity of perspectives so that the solutions we ultimately come up with end up being the most comprehensive, well-thought-out, creative, and inclusive as they can be. So I really want to encourage us to always maintain an open mind as we dive into all of these discussions with guests that, you know, have different backgrounds and fields of expertise, where you might notice that sometimes our new guests push back or disagree with things that our past guests have said. All of this to me just means that we have to keep sharpening our own critical thinking skills so we can take everything into account when shaping our own viewpoints. But anyway, with all of this said, Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
2: My academic background is sort of at the the intersection between geography, economics, and urban and regional planning. I guess my first sort of bolt of environmental awareness in a kind of academic sense was um, I was recruited into a project after the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill, which probably seems like a million years ago. Mm -hmm. But it occurred on the heels of a series of other major so-called technological accidents. So we had a series of... uh, quite catastrophic uh, instances of community chemical contamination. We had uh, the Three Mile Island nuclear accident during the same general time period. There was a horrific explosion at a chemical plant in uh, Bhopal, India. And then along in 1989, we had the Exxon Valdez oil spill, which was both ecologically uh, destructive, but also massively socially destabilizing and it really sort of brought to my unavoidable attention the sort of inextricable connections between sort of the social environment and the biophysical environment and um i was working at the time with a group of environmental sociologists trying to understand what the impacts of that incident were both environmentally and socially fragile communities of uh of south-central Alaska, and so that was the kind of primary kind of wake-up call for me. Um, that was a project that I carried out as a graduate student at the time. The connection to uh, to consumption and, and consumerism came a little bit later. I was during the mid-1990s based at a newly established environmental research center at, it was part of one of the colleges at Oxford University, and this was in the period not too long after the 1992 Earth Summit. And the sort of primary narrative in the air at the time was about corporate environmental responsibility and uh, improvements in production uh, efficiencies. And that struck me as, as, as a little bit off the mark, that it wasn't just a matter of improving the environmental performance of the way in which we produced consumer goods, but it was also about the the uptake and throughput of those consumer goods at the household level. That led to sort of a series of, uh, of projects at the early stages of what was the development of the sort of academic field focused on what's come to be known as sustainable consumption. So working with uh, colleagues at the time, we put out one of the first books on the subject It really marked a moment in which attention was sort of newly focused on the role of consumption and uh, consumer demand as uh, really the driving factor in utterly unsustainable systems of consumption and production.
0: Your book titled The Future of Consumer Society, Prospects for Sustainability in the New Economy, notes that consumer society in the United States and other countries has been receding. What exactly do you mean that consumer society has been receding? And what has that been a response to?
1: So
2: just to, to, to clarify that when I talk about sustainable consumption and the relationship between uh, consumer society and sustainability, I'm, I'm not focused Specifically on what we might think of as green consumerism, there are a lot of problems with the way in which green consumerism has come to be de- operationalized, especially in the United States, as, a, as an overly individualized approach. So there's a tendency for us to retreat from the, from the politics of consumption and to think that if we eat a little bit differently, drive our cars a little bit less, maybe, maybe acquire an, a, an electric vehicle that through our individual behavior changes, that that will all roll up together into a process of meaningful change. I think the evidence suggests that that's not likely to to lead to the kinds of outcomes that we anticipate, and that we have to begin to recognize that consumer society as it exists today, um, or at least as it existed sort of pre-COVID pandemic, you know, yeah. is a system, it's an engineered system that has been specifically created in order to achieve particular outcomes and uh, that, that are beneficial to, to particular people and, and organizations. You know, we have lived in a world in which the ultimate objective is to try to drive through as much energy, as much materials, as much extractive uh, resources as possible, and to move those materials and resources into consumer products that people will buy. But uh, this is a system that has uh, been designed, it's been engineered, it's been created over the last, you know, about 100 years or so. I mean, we can put the starting date at various points in time, but roughly speaking, about 80 to 100 years ago, um, it really began to accelerate after World War II. And the flip side of the consumer society is a world in which most people are, are earning a dependable wage, working in jobs that provide some modicum of benefits and economic security that enables them to make big ticket purchases like houses and cars, and then to fill those houses with, you know, vast quantities of consumer goods. I think the evidence even prior to the pandemic was that this system was beginning to collapse it's collapsing because of demographic change as nominally affluent countries get wealthy get older it means that their appetite for consumer goods changes their lifestyles become less material and int- materially in- intensive we see this most dramatically in japan and in many respects uh, japan is the bellwether or the precursor of what is um Will come to pass in most other so-called economically advanced countries. So um, the ability of of advanced or economically developed countries to continue to generate the quantum's of economic growth is becoming more and more difficult. And again, Japan is a primary example of that. So I mean, in in summary, the the underpinnings, or you could think of the foundational basis that has enabled and created a consumer society and facilitated its ability to thrive are and have been eroding. And that um, if we think historically of a transition from societies that were organized primarily around agriculture to societies that were organized principally around industrial production, to, since the end of World War II, um, affluent societies that have been organized around consumption and consumerism, that third phase seems to be in its sunset, Mm. and that um, what will emerge as the next stage is very much up for, for discussion and debate, but I think the experiences that we've had for the last couple of months since the uh, sort of the global arrival of the the COVID pandemic are going to substantially accelerate that process of transformation.
0: It's really interesting how you point out the the difference in looking at consumerism. So I do feel like when we talk about consumerism, most people immediately jump to, you know, what am I doing as an individual? What am I buying? So when you talk about the politics of consumer society, what you really mean is that there's a larger system that's been designed intentionally to shape the outcomes and to shape how we behave as individual consumers and the incentives that are put in place to also affect producers on the back end
1: yeah, no that's
2: exactly right that um, again, we live in a in a society that is heavily oriented towards towards individualism. We tend to interpret what are in fact, social problems as, as problems of individual dysfunction. And that's um, a bit of a long story as to how we've arrived at this particular place of, of thinking in such overly individualized terms. But uh, a consumer society is indeed a societal construct. And uh, again, as I mentioned before, it provides advantages and financial rewards for, for some people, um, and um, it creates the the prospect for oppression amongst many others. You know, again, it's hard to know where we're going to be six months or a year or five years from now, but certainly over the past several decades, the aspiration for most of the world has been to recreate itself in the vision of America as a corpulent massively consuming society you know the premise has been that uh, the more you consume the the higher your well-being is the happier you are the more satisfactory your life is i think more and more people are coming to question that uh, underlying presumption as well and the fact that many of us have been you know, more or less locked away in our houses for the past eight or 10 weeks has probably prompted some new consideration of the fact that 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 prospect, as alluring as it is, is not the secret key to a a life well
1: lived. In
0: 2016, when your book published, you said these developments as in the changes in our consumer society, have prompted some policymakers to suggest providing households with a non-labor source of income that would enable more adequate satisfaction of their basic needs. These proposals include a universal basic income income, a citizen's dividend, and a legal framework for broad-based stock ownership in corporations. However, extreme political fractiousness makes it unlikely that these recommendations will receive prompt and widespread legislative endorsement in most countries end quote. It is 2020 now. Do you think the landscape has changed to allow something like a universal basic income, which recognizes that we provide value to society in many other currently undervalued ways beyond our jobs? Might this be entering the mainstream American consciousness and discourse to make it more likely to happen?
2: Oh my gosh, you just sent a shiver up my spine reading that passage. <laughs> um, because What may have been radical three or four years ago, or even radical six months ago, has become decidedly mainstream today. One of the consequences of the pandemic is that we have, in effect, in the United States, created a system, at least on a temporary and provisional basis, of a universal basic income. The U.S. federal government has just completed a process of mailing out checks or other forms of funds to, uh, to to millions of households. There'll probably be a need. Uh, there will be a need. Whether the government responds is another situation. For another disbursement of of similar scale, we have uh, states and local governments uh, waiving the payment of rent and payments on mortgages. So um, a universal basic income, which Three or four years ago, was seen as being hopelessly unrealistic, has now become almost normalized. As we begin to measure and see the full extent, scale and extent of the economic carnage that is, you know, sitting outside of our doorsteps, I think that, uh, particularly if there's there's a process of political change that occurs uh, towards the end of 2020 that the demand for a universal basic income will become utterly unavoidable. You know, it's an indication that sometimes uh, the wheel of time moves ideas that were deemed to be radical at one point to be almost utterly unobjectionable and normal when moving through a process of, of social, political, and economic disruption of the, the scales that we've seen. But the point about cooperativism and and stock ownership Let me take the issue of cooperativism first. We're desperately in need of new business models that enable people to retain the value of their own labor. There has been in the United States and uh, and elsewhere a a kind of a divide between people who have embraced the idea of consumer cooperatives on one hand, organizations like uh, REI, for instance, and worker cooperatives. I think we're going to have a screaming need over the next uh, number of years to actively revisit the role that cooperatives can play as a form of mutual aid in much the same way that they did during the 19th century. So before national governments uh, became uh, involved in the provision of social assistance To ease the burdens of inequality of an industrial economy and an industrial society, the primary forces, uh, primary sources of uh, of uh, enabling people to maintain themselves in uh, heart and mind, were through mutual aid societies, through through cooperatives. I think we're going to see uh, a new wave of cooperatives uh, being organized by by labor unions and perhaps even by municipal governments. You know, I see uh, maybe it's because of the complete and utter failure of governance at the national level in the United States that it's municipalities that, uh, that hold the, the, the key to the future. And one way that I see them being able to fulfill that role is through active engagement in the formation and facilitation of cooperative forms of, of ownership.
1: Save the river, save the sea save the mother and her family can you take what you want and say that we are free if you put oil in the water we won't sit quietly and they were singing stand up stand up.
0: So on top of the changes that were already happening pre-pandemic, we are, of course, currently going through this era of COVID-19 as we speak, and we never want to diminish the tragic losses that so many have faced. Though in dealing with this emergency, a lot of norms have been challenged, consumer behavior has shifted, and a lot of people's livelihoods have been disrupted. So there have inevitably been changes. I'm wondering how you see these changes line up with the changes that we need to address our larger health and environmental concerns.
2: Yes, I like to think in this uh, sort of catchy phrase of how we go from, from being locked in to locking down. Some of the improvements that, uh, or changes that uh, that we've experienced, some of the more remarkable outcomes of the current and ongoing pandemic have been um, reductions in energy use, uh, reductions in, in in carbon releases, um, improvements in air quality, especially in cities that suffered from you know horrific air quality problems. Prior to the pandemic, the 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 loud and uh, and vigorous response to any calls for more sustainable forms of consumption tended to be dismissed. You know, that this we, we can't impose obligations on consumers, that people's lifestyles are sacred, this is not a role for government to intervene in, while at the same time failing to recognize that there are all manner of different aspects pre-pandemic that we, we, we regulated people's consumer lives from the sale of alcohol to uh, the acquisition of guns to um, what kinds of products can be legally sold and are deemed to be wholesome and healthful beyond certain dates. So the reality is, is that we have and we have had a vast system for regulating and ensuring the safety of the consumer society, though the system is imperfect, you know, we do have regulatory agencies that intervene to remove from the markets products that are recognized to be dangerous and unhealthful. Certainly what we've seen during the pandemic is a recognition that people under certain conditions will make very radical changes for extended periods of time in terms of how they conduct their lives and how they go about their daily business. So I'm certainly not the first to make this uh, observation, but one can re- regard COVID-19 as a kind of fire drill for climate change and also uh, a perhaps an inspiring recognition that, that we can do this. We can make rather far-ranging, sweeping, radical changes in our lifestyles when circumstances demand it the big difference being that you know covid-19 was a was an acute and is continues to be an acute emergency whereas you know climate change does not necessarily conjure up the same sense of urgency and immediacy but it will be upon us and that there are important lessons, I think, for us to take from the current moment as we begin to think about, you know, what are the lessons that we've learned and how can we carry this forward into the future?
0: So certainly one of the other positive things that have happened as a result of the pandemic is I believe CSAs have been doing really well. So community-supported agriculture, a lot more people are subscribing or purchasing locally from their farmers. We've had many advocates on the podcast who are really proponents of our need to localize our economies. And I'm aware that you've looked at some localization fallacies. So I'm wondering if you can share some of those things and what we should be mindful of when looking to localization as a way to build community resilience.
2: Yeah. So in, um, you know, in many environmental circles, localization is, uh, is heralded as a in in an uncritical way as a sort of one-size-fits-all solution. But uh, I think it behooves us to ask some more questions about, first of all, what do we mean by local? How do we define localization? Maybe I'm insufficiently optimistic or expansive in my thinking, but uh, it strikes me as highly unlikely that we're going to revert to a to a system of of what's sometimes known as autarky where we we live, you know, highly circumscribed uh, regionally and locally circumscribed lives. We don't engage in interregional or international trade. You know, we all sort of revert back to our own home localities and home regions. The consequences of that would be extreme and perverse, especially for regions that don't have beneficial agricultural endowments. So, you know, it's one thing for somebody in the Central Valley of California to talk about localization and uh, sitting on the, on, the, on the doorstep of a vast agricultural bounty. But what happens to somebody in, uh, in Northern Canada or Siberia for that matter, you know, that doesn't have access to, uh, to the same kind of locational climatic advantages? I'd also sort of draw attention to the fact that localization cuts two ways, that the the side of localization that, at least in environmental circles, we don't like to to focus on is that pridefulness in one's locality or one's region can very easily elide into a kind of xenophobia where locality is privileged and takes pride of place over uh people and places that are at further uh, geographic remove and the the challenge of sustainability you know as it was articulated so well back in the 1970s of 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 thinking globally and acting locally we can't disregard the global dimensions and my fear about an overemphasis on localization is that it blacks out anything that is not within the immediate purview of however one goes about the process of defining their own local identity. So um, I think pragmatically and practically applied, obviously, local agriculture, local sourcing, perhaps even local and regional manufacturing holds some very significant promise. But at the same time, we need to be careful to avoid some of the more ideological elements that are part of a of of an ardent localization
1: agenda.
0: Well, clearly with the inequitable ways that the U.S. government so far has been dealing with the economic implosion caused by the pandemic, as well as the evident racial and social injustices still embedded into our society, continually highlighted by the Black Lives Matter movement. We need change and people are really screaming for change. Have these times coupled with the research that you've been doing over the decades given you new perspectives and insights on what is really needed to bring about the large-scale and systemic changes that we need?
2: I'd certainly like to think so. You know, it's always hard to generalize. It's always dangerous to generalize or overgeneralize from one's um, own narrow window on the world. But along with a few colleagues, um, Back in the middle of March, we uh, we published a uh, a piece that drew attention to some of the opportunities that the COVID pandemic likely held in the medium to long term. We certainly were were sensitive to the to the scale of the of the tragedy, to the disruption and suffering created in people's lives. But out of disaster, if one sort of is sensitive to the historical lessons, that there there is opportunity that emerges out of catastrophe. We wrote this piece that focused on some of the things that we've been talking about today, the potential of a universal basic income, the uh, changes in global supply chains, uh, for instance. And we were, you know, as an academic, I tend to live in a world of pretty small numbers, so if uh, a few hundred or a few thousand people read something that I've written, I consider that to be a, a monumental success. This blog posting, which uh, appeared on the, the website of a international science consortium called Future Earth, attracted several thousand views in a relatively short period of time, which kind of drove home the point for us that, well, maybe we've captured something here. We organized a, a webinar that was held at the end of uh, March. So still fairly early on in the unfolding arc of the, uh, of the pandemic. About seven or eight hundred people registered for it and about four or five hundred people ultimately attended, which again, sort of in, in my world is a, a huge, um, home run in terms of, uh, of, of mobilizing people's attention for a short period of time. And then following this webinar, people's enthusiasm was, was at such a high level. We had literally people kind of banging on our doors asking, well, what can we do next? And so, um, one thing led to another. And over the past eight weeks, I and a small group of others have been, you know, overseeing a, an initiative where we have, uh, Ten or twelve working groups actively engaged, hundreds of people participating collaboratively in a Slack workspace, and a, and a process uh, that of, of extreme promise has been mobilized, where people are, are looking to develop research projects, collaborate with practitioners and policymakers. You know, as all part of a process of well, how can we take some of the threads of the current, uh, the recent experience, and drive home. And contribute to a process of sustainability transition. So that's, uh, that, that's a source of, of significant optimism. But, you know, again, I need to sort of keep things into, in perspective and, um, and and recognize that the interest of my colleagues and other partners can sometimes be fickle and people, you know, will move on to other things. You know, the big challenge at the moment is, is mobilizing the world of philanthropy, which, uh, is a difficult challenge. As much as they like to talk about social change, um, most philanthropic organizations are resistant to truly transformational change because they they don't want to take risks, and transformation necessarily entails risk. It never ceases to amaze me truly how conservative, conservative with a small C, the world of, uh, of philanthropy is. And so, uh, again, I remain optimistic, but... Uh, It's only possible to maintain people's engagement and interest, you know, without the availability of some financial support for a limited period of time before, you know, they flame out or their interest gets diverted by things that offer a more remunerative prospect. But if I had to issue a challenge to anyone, it would be to the philanthropic world, you know, to sort of really take seriously their own rhetoric and commit themselves to, uh, to a much more uh, ambitious process of social transformation than their uh, executive boards are typically prepared to to embark upon.
0: And finally, what are some concrete action steps that you recommend our listener do to fully step into their roles as active citizens and like you mentioned earlier act locally but with that global picture in mind and also, you know, be bolder in in helping to create the transformative changes that we need for our, our future,
2: I think if one of, one of the lessons of the the pandemic is really that that municipal governments really sit at the, the frontier of change. Some of the extraordinary things going on in cities like Oakland and uh, and New York and um, you know elsewhere around the world. I think what we're going to see in the weeks and months to come, you know, is that municipal governments are going to be asked. And almost implored to take on roles that they have, um, not previously embraced. So whether it's running soup kitchens or, uh, job assistance programs, municipal governments are going to come under a tremendous amount of pressure to keep people alive in a period of time when there is no effective response from, uh, from the federal government. And these are systems of governance that are closest to um the real lives of of everyday people. So um supporting some of these initiatives would be an important activity for some of your listeners to to take up but also on a on an even smaller scale basis to to uh, to join with their neighbors, other residents of their communities and not just be focused on well certainly they need to be focused on issues of immediate need but to also think about uh, how they can, you know, be part of a process of of transformational change. You know, and it doesn't necessarily need to be focused on the kind of ordinary activities that, that local governments provide, you know, in terms of uh, fire protection and police and zoning and property taxes and things. But uh, beginning to develop a, a hopeful and optimistic vision of the future is going to have to begin very much at a community level. So, you know, get out and greet your neighbors and uh, and, and organize community barbecues and, uh, you know, reach across the fence. That one of the things that a consumer society does in order to bring things back to our, our earlier conversation, you know, is to break people into atomized consumer units. The logic of of, of a consumer society doesn't want us sharing things it wants us to own our own washing machines and our own lawnmowers and our own power tools or have our own uh, uh, kitchen appliances you know as a means of uh, creating the conditions to to sell more stuff and so one way to actively resist that is to to get together with your neighbors and i would heartily endorse uh, heartily encourage your listeners to to take a look at what the online resource shareable um, under the guidance and directorship of Neil Gorenflow is doing in order to try to inspire a much more mutualistic, collaborative, shared sense of engagement um, than is customarily the case.
0: Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Maury's work, you can head to www.moricohen.net That's spelled M-A-U-R-I-E-C-O-H-E-N.net. Maury, we appreciate you so much and thank you so much for sharing your time with us here and your wide range of expertise and inspirations. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
2: Well, I like to uh, the point I like to make to my students, especially at the end of the semester, is that um, the future is not something that sits out there on the horizon that we kind of march towards. That the future is a uh, is, is something that we all co-create, and that all of us have a role to play in in the design and the creation of artful, beneficial futures that uh, that offer the prospect for um, good, healthful, sustainable. Equitable living and that, you know, we shouldn't put our, put the responsibility for that into the hands of, uh, of corporate officials or of political leaders to the extent that we have them, but that, that, that each of us is empowered to play a role in that process of, uh, of, of future envisioning and future realization.
0: This is Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, we would love to have your direct support starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support so we can keep this show going and accessible to the public. Today's song feature is Fight For You by Ray Zaragoza, whose work you can find at rayzaragoza.com. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much. Thank you for tuning in and uh, committing to learning with us. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.